Erica, thank you for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. Um, sometimes, and people that have listened to multiple episodes, like, don't really hear me introduce or let people introduce themselves. I just jump into it. So I don't know, maybe to change it up, why don't you introduce yourself? Hmm, I'm Erica. Um, I've lived in Utah for 12 years. Uh-huh. It's a long time. Mm-hmm. I live in Midvale, very interesting city. And I work for Catholic Community Services with Refugee Foster Care. I like to hike. Yeah. There we go. Me and Erica crossed paths uh, when she came to work at Asian Association at Sunnyvale Neighborhood Center. How many years ago was that? I was thinking about that. I think almost seven. Wow. I know. And That's you're crazy. the first person to take a chance on me. I'm very grateful. Uh, I do. I, looking back, it doesn't feel like a chance at all. It feels like <laughs> one of the better decisions I've made about hiring. <laughs> um, so you mentioned 12 years in Utah. And I know a little bit about you coming from Southern California. Mm-hmm. You moved directly from Southern California to Utah. Yeah. I think that always begs the question of like, why leave sunny Southern California, yes. the beaches, all that to come to Utah? I know. And I was uh, very stubborn because I grew up Mormon family in Southern California. And I thought, I'm not going to be one of those kids who just goes to BYU and goes to Utah. <laughs> and I was really adamant about going to Brown or Oxford specifically. Oh, okay. Those are my dreams. And then I looked at the tuition there and I was like, dang it, I'm going to go to BYU. <laughs> I'm going to go to Utah. So that's why I came was cheap tuition. I mean, fair enough. Let's let's be honest. Uh, for the quality of schooling you get at BYU and the tuition cost, it really is quite the deal if if you take away all the other factors Mm -hmm. but I would have loved for you to go to Oxford because I don't know if you knew this about me part of my LDS Mormon mission I lived in Oxford no yeah yeah, I've considered maybe I still want to go but then I think maybe it'll be enough if I pull a great Gatsby and just technically go there visit there and then Mm -hmm. say I went to Oxford so cool fun fact about oxford is that they have an incredible library Mm. and if you i can't remember you'd have to look up the justification but if you present some justification of why you need to go sit in their library and read Mm. because they have you know just tons of articles and books and whatever from all their different little universities there they'll let you do that so you could go sit in a reading room and studied yeah you studied at oxford (laughs) you sat there i I tried to do that last time i went but i was more or less just passing through for a day to just kind of reminisce for a minute yeah yeah they have a master's in refugee studies yeah i did see that as well i've watched that video a lot of times but i haven't been able to reconcile i thought I'll do my undergrad at BYU and then I'll go to grad school there. And then I thought, why did I think I would have money <laughs> after my undergrad? So to be continued someday, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah, I would love it if you were able to do that because I, I just love the city and the vibe in Oxford is really cool. And the, the you know, the, you have the whole university, but then you have the individual colleges and it's kind of a, a different setup compared to the United States, mm-hmm. but it, it's super fun and interesting. So... But you didn't go to Oxford. You went to that, <laughs> yeah. that school called BYU. <laughs> yeah. What was that transition like to go from what I perceive, yeah. and maybe you can fix my perceptions of laid back California to now like you're living BYU. Provo. Yeah, I would say that perception is pretty valid um, about growing up in Orange County. Um, one thing that was kind of shocking to me is I think I had 
pretty strong confidence um, in growing up, and I thought um, I'm smart and that I'm there's something different. Like I'm different than a lot of the other teenage girls because I am religious or whatever. Uh-huh. And then I went to BYU and I thought, hmm, I'm everyone is smart <laughs> and everyone is religious. So what makes me special, I guess? So that was, at first, that was kind of surprising to me that it threw me for a loop, but then I kind of figured out, reformed my identity, um, broadened that, luckily. Yeah. <laughs> There's more to me than just those things. And um, yeah, I also felt like there was definitely a lot of the stereotypes that I thought about what it would be like to be at BYU, but wherever you go, you can find people like you and find people you connect with, pe- people who aren't like you that you connect with. And so found found my people, still best friends with them now, really grateful. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I did notice, so I went to BYU as well, and I did notice that it was very much like that. Like everybody was very bright and mm-hmm. like on top of their lives, almost to a point of like, being super annoyed by it. Yeah. I don't know if you got annoyed no, by it yeah, as well. No, yeah, for sure. Because it, it became, for me, like I noticed a lot in like the classes that I would attend that it was always like, a, almost everybody was like the teacher pet, like yeah. raising their hand, <laughs> trying to answer the questions, <laughs> trying to get the best score on the, ruin the curve for everybody sort mm-hmm. of thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, when is this going to stop? Yeah, I was used to being the only person participating in seminary. And then you just go to BYU and I don't have anything to say, I guess. Everybody has mm-hmm. uh, presumably much more insight into the Bible and Book of Mormon mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What did you study at BYU? Same as you. Psychology? No, I thought you studied anthropology. No, I did psychology. What? I did a bachelor's in psychology. Did you study anthropology elsewhere? Did I no, make that up? <laughs> I, admit, I think you meant, made it I up. I literally yeah. thought this whole time that, we, that you studied anthropology at BYU. Man, uh, must have been someone yeah. else. Hmm. I think it's just my life, stu- my life study okay. anthropology okay, to like, yeah, yeah. be interested in, yeah. in human beings. But yeah, I did undergrad in psychology and then I did my master's in social work. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's right. I do remember now that when we were uh, talking about your quote-unquote qualifications, <laughs> your anthropology degree, I was like, yeah, that will be useful. Yeah, to be curious about why people are in the way that they totally. are. Totally. I think it has. I still think about that. I still think about what I learned. And I think curiosity, the word you used, is the right word of just shifting your brain to be curious. And um, I feel like I still apply some of the things I learned. Yeah. Was the goal to be an anthropologist or? The goal was to work with refugees. Okay. Mm-hmm. And here you are. Here I am. Dreams come true. Okay. And you didn't know at what level or how you no. wanted to do it. It was just kind of like an anthropology degree would be a good lead up. Yeah. I think um, definitely things uh, nar- narrowed down throughout my life and kind of brought me to that single point. And I was one of those weird kids in high school. We had to take a career education and computer application class Mm. which was a joke to most people and they were smoking weed and I was like this is awesome you taking personality quizzes about what jobs would be best for you and sociology and anthropology came up for me and I was in ninth grade and I thought oh what are those and I researched them I thought this is perfect and so I felt like um, I knew I wanted to learn about people and do something meaningful, but I didn't know what I was good at. I thought, I can't be a nurse. I'm bad at science. I don't think I would be very good at politics. And so I tried to figure out what could I be good at. And it 
anthropology is basically people watching. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, th- I think I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> so that's kind of what led me there, I guess. And I thought, well, maybe if I learned about the way they view the world, I could I could be helpful working with refugees. So. And who doesn't love people watching? Let's yeah. be honest, we all love it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But are you good? Do you have a certificate? Do you have a degree I in it? I do not, no. no. And yeah, you do. So I'll have to, <laughs> yeah, default my judgment to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you. So you mentioned refugees and that focus. Did mm-hmm. that ha- yeah, happen before you went to BYU kinda, that you're yeah. like, that was on your radar? Because yeah. I'll admit, like, refugees were not on my no, radar until grad most, school. Yeah, most people, I think, even when I would say we're wanting to work with refugees, they'd be take them a moment and they'd think, what is that again? Um, I think it was kind of this... Um, honestly, I think I was pretty impacted by movies. So watching... Hotel Rwanda in middle school kind of blew my mind. That scene where they're like, they're now that you have uh, footage of this, they're gonna come and help. And they're like, no, they'll eat their dinner and say, oh my gosh, that's so sad, and keep eating their dinner. And that just kind of haunted me about um, that that happened around the time I was born and I didn't know about it. And there are things going on right now that I don't know about and I don't do anything about. And so that kind of, I was probably in seventh grade when I started kind of thinking about that and feeling shame about that and trying to understand what to do about that. And then I saw um, Blood Diamond. Okay. And there's scenes just in passing about kind of child soldiers and rehab centers. So just these things that I was exposed to and I started thinking about, oh, that's a really interesting piece of the puzzle is the aftermath and um, the impact of war that has on children and families and people so it kind of I wanted to be there where it was happening Uh but I also thought I'm just this white girl like (laughs) what am I gonna do there and so then I started thinking about well what about when they come here and what that's like and so that's kind of what led me there and then uh so that I had that intention going into um undergrad and then I took a class and we talked about place and how much we are formed by the place that we're in. And and I started really thinking about, uh, so if place has such an impact on our identity, what about displacement? And so that really kind of solidified that on a kind of theoretical level, I guess. And then um, that was my intention, I guess, throughout. And when I had to choose an ethnographic research project, that's something that I wanted to focus on was refugees and stuff like that. That's awesome. I think my thought process was somewhat similar in like thinking about really liking the idea of working internationally, mm-hmm. f- doing refugee work, but then like thinking practically about it and being like, okay, um, at some level, yeah, like I'm just a white guy. Like what would it mean for me to fly over to Africa or yeah. to, to go to Burma to try to help that situation? Could I have a similar impact by working locally and maybe still if the chance comes do some international work yeah I, yeah and yeah, I, I think I've I'm happy with that decision you know there's <laughs> there's the uh, attractiveness of living internationally but I think that's just like uh, the novelty in my mind I don't know that it's obviously really difficult work wherever you go but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah that's true um, so you thought about it you went through all your coursework, and then uh, you came to a point where 
you started having to uh, apply for jobs. What was yes. your first job outside of finishing your anthropology degree? Um, well, it was with you. I started about the same time working at Sunnyvale Neighborhood Center with Asian Association of Utah. Peter, you were my boss. And then I worked with Promise South Salt Lake as a family outreach liaison. And that was, I was actually talking to my sister about this the other day. I didn't think about the fact that I didn't have any experience and so it was really surprising to me when I graduated and I was applying for jobs and full-time jobs that required a bachelor's level degree but also experience and I wasn't getting them and so then I realized dang it I read books but what do I have to offer these people how do I prove to them that I think I could do this Um, so I worked two part-time jobs that required a high school diploma and, um, and that's another reason, I guess, why I stayed in Utah. I didn't really expect to stay in Utah post-graduation, but um, it's really unique that I was able to survive just working two part-time jobs, making like, promise I was making $11 an hour, and no benefits, and I just, I could do it. And I'm so grateful um, that I was forced to start there kind of seemed like at the bottom and kind of work my way learn learn along the way so that's where I started I now that this is all coming back to me you know I don't remember all these details but now that you're saying them I do remember some of this and I you know thinking back and now if it's appropriate I express that appreciation for you Mm -hmm. willing to like do those those types of jobs even though you had a, a bachelor's degree and maybe you could try, like you, you said, you're having trouble to find something, but mm-hmm. maybe you could try to find something, but then you took a step back and took a chance. And I think, I don't know, if you fast forward real quick to mm-hmm. right now, do you feel like that that was a good choice mm-hmm. for you to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's amazing too. Like I, I didn't, I didn't expect for things to kind of escalate so quickly and get to where I am now. Like I think I'm proud of of the work that I've done, but I also am glad that I didn't start where I am now. And there's so many important things I learned. Um, and I think too, it's funny, I looking back, I think my dream job specifically working with, I wanted to be a cultural orientation um, oh. person. Uh-huh. I wanted to do cultural orientation. That was my dream job. And I still, I've done it in different jobs um, informally, but still haven't had that job specifically. So kind of funny. There we go. Maybe, uh, you know, CCS, IRC, I don't know. Maybe yeah. there's something in the future there Maybe. for you. Maybe. Yeah. Um, similar situation. So I graduated with my master's degree in social work, and I was like, I need a, a master's level mm-hmm. job sort of thing. And I went out there and looked and was hoping to find something working with refugees or something in a, a similar field. And... There wasn't a lot available at the moment besides like an quote unquote entry level mm-hmm. position. So I started at Catholic Community Services making $14 an hour as <laughs> an employment specialist uh-huh. with a master's degree yeah, and, and now fresh student loans to start mm-hmm. to pay sort of thing. And I just like, uh, I got to get my foot in the door. I got to start somewhere. And really looking back, it was a perfect start because I was very much involved on the very ground level of a refugee or a refugee family coming and having to go through the whole resettlement process. Mm-hmm. Like the employment piece was such a, a big piece that, you know, there was obviously some pressure around it, but it's like, Peter, like these guys, they need a job as soon as possible because they're soon going to have to provide themselves. 
provide for themselves. And so it really helped me to put perspective on the whole refugee process. And from that perspective, you know, I, I hope that I've been able to keep that with all these other jobs that I've had helping refugees is mm-hmm. to kind of like remember like how difficult and challenging it is for them. So I don't know if you experienced a similar thing where you were able to get a better glimpse of, you know, how things are on the ground. So now that you're kind of managing and overseeing programs, it gives you a bit more perspective. For sure. And I, I had that same thought too. Of I just hope that I it's still fresh. And I think we've probably both worked with people who um, have been in managing positions for so long that it seems like maybe they don't remember what that's like. And so I really do try to think about that often and be intentional about what does my direct service look like now and how do I stay connected and make sure I'm not just, um, yeah, set, set in one way, I guess, and, and learning. Yeah. From your experience as a family liaison and working at Sunnyvale Neighborhood Center, what was maybe some of the eye-opening things <laughs> about like Salt Lake as a community mm. and how we were working as w- with refugees as a community? Like, what was it like? Wow, I didn't realize that mm. this was going to be that way or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, so many things every day. I think Utah is a unique place because there's a lot of nonprofits, almost too many hands in the pot, mm. and that was something I learned and I look back on and I think I played into probably that um, I uh, was duplicating services or stepping on toes um, is an interesting, it's an interesting position to be in. Um, but I, re- I can remember visiting families and I didn't ask them, but they're just saying, you know, we, we've been waiting in our kids. I haven't been in school and we need help registering for school. I'm like, oh, I can help you. And I didn't really understand the big picture that they had case managers and they had to do immunizations first before you can register for schools. And I probably got in the way um, more than being helpful. But on the other hand, I also felt like because uh, it was a unique situation doing both because I really both jobs had me concentrated in in um, kind of four apartment complexes. And so those families, um, I was working with the youth at the after school program. And then those same, I was getting referrals from Promise for the same kind of families. And I felt really connected to them. And I was able to get to know them and build trust in maybe a different way. And so then I think towards the end, I kind of was learning how to be more um, partner oriented and helpful, hopefully. Um, but that was something that I didn't really realize is there's a lot of, um, a lot of people helping. And that's usually what I say to, you know, I meet people and they say, Oh, you work in nonprofit. That's so cool. I want to start my own nonprofit. I say, that's great, but you should really make sure that there's not already the one that you want to start and you could support them in different ways. So, I think that was really interesting. And then I just think, yeah, the the strength and the resiliency of the families and the youth. And I think about um, it's really hard to be the messenger sometimes. I remember this family that you know, and uh, they were really having a hard time. The mom had back issues, and she was in so much pain she couldn't work. But um, their benefits were kind of getting tired of that. She didn't actually qualify for SSI. So it got to the point where she was so confused because she's saying, look, my doctor said I have all these back issues. And I said, I know, but you, you're losing your benefits and you're going to be homeless if you don't work. And 
it was so hard. She kept saying the same thing over and over. I said, I know, I believe you. I believe you. I'm just explaining. This is how it works. And then a couple of days later, they walked into Sunnyvale and we're in the middle of doing stuff with the kids. But the parents were like, we got this in the mail. And it says we won $500,000. <laughs> and I just felt so horrible because they were so happy. Right. And I just had to say, this isn't real. Did you already give them your information? Look, if you Google, there are all these scams and... I know this would be so happy and it would solve all your problems, but it's not real. Yeah. And so those kind of things where it's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I learned a lot along the way and I think I still love those families and grateful for everything they taught me. I think about these sort of situations quite a bit because like the systems of how things work is just very interesting in itself. And like you said, there are so many hands in the pot, so to speak, like in in Utah with so many people willing to help, which is great. Like I think it really pays tribute to what type of people are in our community. They're really wanting to help. But then I think about like, well, how is this all coming together? Is this sort of like a little bit of capitalism and nonprofit Mm. where we're all still trying to get our hands in the pot and are we partly doing it for the feel good factor Mm. or or just getting paid factor? Like why, why is it that so many people want to get involved? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts Mm. about that sort of stuff? I don't know. I I think that's, that's something I think about a lot is, um, uh, doing good makes you feel good. Mm. So is it selfish and all those kinds of different kind of deeper questions, I guess. And I think I've seen that a lot with, um, the way people approach the kind of work they want to do versus, um, what's actually helpful. Um, so I think, yeah, I I think that's all part of it. I think, I think capitalism is part of it. I think, um, uh, making money is kind of funny to me because you don't make very much money. (laughs) So being in it for the money is pretty, uh, bizarre to me, but maybe there are people who are doing it for that. But I think, um, the attention, that's something I've kind of struggled with socially is sometimes I kind of cringe when you're in a social situation and they ask what you do and I love what I do and I love talking about it and I'm really proud of the work that I do, but I know that, um, oh my gosh, you are so amazing. Uh. (laughs) It's really uncomfortable and, and I don't, I, I still am trying to figure out how to do that and, um, how to navigate those situations. So I think, um, there's a lot of, um, reward for doing this kind of work and a lot of attention and social uh, reward and kind of being put on a pedestal of goodness and yeah uh, I don't, I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate that all I'm with you I don't know after all these years if I've quite figured it out too you know I've gone from responses like well you know we all have our different <laughs> yeah. sort of place in the community and we all need to work together so <laughs> thank you for saying thank you but thank you yeah, you know? <laughs> like, yeah totally. trying to like turn it around mm-hmm. um, but it is kind of like an awkward thing because there are so many people that are being like now your job really makes a difference. Like you're really doing good work. And mm-hmm. me, like I just work in a bank yes. or whatever. Like you really are making a difference. And part of me is like, well, you know, if you feel like the these other jobs are going to mm-hmm. make a bigger difference, why don't you come and help us out, yeah. sort of thing? But the other part of me is like, well, we need people to work in the bank too. Yes. So you know, if if you don't have the personality or drive to come and 
work with kids that are challenging, then stay at the bank. You yeah, know? that's so, so true. And maybe send some of your money from the bank over to us so <laughs> yeah. we can provide better services. I don't know. Yeah. I, I've been better at like being a little bit more direct about asking that sort of stuff mm-hmm. because I think like, why not? If I ask it in a from a good place, mm-hmm. then I, I think people will respond well. So That's smart. I'll, I'll try that. And I think what you said is true. I read a book about a year ago that I really liked called Think Like a Monk by okay. Jay Shetty. And there's a part in it about how some people um, choose a job basis, based off of what will do the most good, which is good, but they're not good at it. And so it's not that good and it won't actually lead to long-term fulfillment. Mm. And then some people find something that they're really good at, but it doesn't do any good. Um, and that also is uh, maybe not gonna lead to long-term fulfillment, but trying to find something that you're good at and that does good and banking is good. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I watched the big short and I was like, I'm out. Yeah. And then like, dang it, I did it. I, I have a mortgage even though I said I wouldn't and I have a bank uh, account but um, yeah I think I think I try I've been trying that's been one of my strategies for deflecting is I just talk about that book and encourage them to find something that's both because um, yeah I'm not good at um, working in the tech industry I wouldn't be good at that Um, but I also think a lot of people with good intentions want to get involved in nonprofit. but like you said maybe maybe they're not cut out to work with teenagers. (laughs) You have to be kind of realistic about what are your strengths, what are you passionate about, and how can you combine those things? And Mm. I feel lucky. I feel like I've found something that has those. And going back to, like, the start of our conversation of, like, how we both were coming to our decisions on wanting to work with refugees, part of that for me probably was this idea of, like, I'm Mormon. This is part of my mm. responsibility. Mm. I need to do this. Yeah. Um, and luckily, I think for me, it is kind of where my general passion is and what I'm good at as well. So it's kind of worked out that maybe my some of my ideas of religion and Mormonism have, have shifted. And so now I'm not like as Mormon heaven motivated, <laughs> but just like I want to help people out motivated. Yeah. Was in, does that happen for you at all? Like was mm. part of that, w- would you connect that all to your belief? Like Maybe. this desire to want to help? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think definitely part of my childhood was service. My mom's special ed teacher. Uh-huh. And so I think that was always just maybe part of the narrative. Um, and to me, I guess something that I think is kind of comical with uh, Christianity, conservatism, <laughs> if that's the right word, is uh, to me, it just seems really obvious that if we're all brothers and sisters, um, borders and different things like that, I just, I'm really confused by how people make those connections with their own religious values. So to me, it was like the opposite. And I think growing up in Southern California, I realized, uh, what if I had been born two hours South, Uh. my life would be completely different and recognizing that I, um, I work hard, et cetera, all that narrative, but I, um, my life, yeah, my life would have been totally different and I didn't do anything to deserve that or earn that and I'm not better than anyone else. So I think um, those kinds of beliefs about just if we're all connected and we're all just human beings and we're all brothers and sisters and I really care about my brothers 
at what they're going through over there, even though I don't have to see it every day. So I think those kinds of values have probably enmeshed with my religious upbringing have did bring me to where I am now and do still kind of ring true where I'm like, that's my brother. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. Those are really good points. And I, I've thought about that same sort of thing when, you know, you get into the politics or the religion of things where you, you kind of spot these hypocrisies mm-hmm. a little bit. And you're like, well, what about <laughs> this? You know, like this doesn't really make sense. And I honestly haven't heard a great explanation for that either. So I would, I would love, you know, maybe I could find somebody that can bring other perspective into this about, you know, this Christian Republican conservative mm-hmm. viewpoint of um, our country and how we spend our money and mm-hmm. how we support other people and uh, immigration, all these sort of things, you know, like how, how do we bring together this idea of Christianity that we are all brothers and sisters, we're supposed to love each other, we're supposed to serve each other with this idea of like, oh, you know, if you come from another country, we're going to treat you differently mm-hmm. and, and all this sort of thing. And obviously we could go down a, a very yeah. big rabbit hole talking about that and like yeah. wondering about that. And there's plenty of questions to ask, but I think it's valid questions. And part of the reason why I wanted to have these conversations with people is to bring out these kind of perspectives and questions. And if anything, they can just be rhetorical questions for people to think about and be like, okay, yeah, I like, I've never challenge myself that way sort of thing Mm -hmm. hopefully i hope so too um you eventually started working for catholic community services in refugee foster care Mm -hmm. foster care is obviously i don't think i have to tell anybody you know a challenging uh thing you know i think you started as a case manager Mm -hmm. correct what were your was what was your experience as a case manager oh um I would. I was doing case management with, at AAU, youth case management, when I left, but kind of part-time and working with youth with families and working with the families and working on goals and following up on those goals. Um, and I loved it. Um, but the case management with refugee foster care is really intense because we're completely responsible for them. Uh, legally, the liability, all that kind of thing. Um, they're in the custody of CCS. And so as a case manager, you're acting as a legal guardian, which was pretty comical to me. I was like 25 and I'm like, I have 15 children, teenagers that I'm responsible for. And um, I think I, I I didn't do a great job, honestly, as a case manager, really partnering with the foster families. I was really focused on the youth and their needs. Um, but now I can see how that's obviously the key um, is, um, uh, yes, they're not here with their own family, but that, that family unit that teenagers and youth and that development phase need, they still need. And that's the key to success, not a really great case manager. Um, but that was really overwhelming. I think uh, you've probably experienced this where there are times in social work that just you're so stressed and you're so emotionally drained. And I always tell this story to new case managers now to be like, it's okay. Um I, yeah, I was really overwhelmed and there was also a lot of political stuff about Muslim bans and stuff and I was so just upset um, and really overwhelmed with my caseload and I was at a party 
But I just started crying because I wasn't, I was physically at the party, but I was not at the party. Uh-huh. And I was thinking about work and I was thinking about these kids and things that were going on with them and it wasn't working. And I started crying and uh, my husband Dylan hugs me and just said, you could just work at the gym. <laughs> and I just started laughing but crying louder and this thought, oh my gosh. And kind of what we're saying about, you know, finding a job that has meaning you're good at. But I was like, I could just say, welcome to the gym. Thank you for coming. And um, yeah, there, there's been so many times still where I think I'm just going to run away. Like I'm just going to run away. It's so hard. So yeah, as a case manager, um, but also you learn along the way of um, working smarter and yeah. um, knowing when you've given it everything and and letting go of um, the outcome that you're not in control of that. So I think I learned the hard way a lot of times with that where it really consumes me. Um, but I think I, I've kind of, it still consumes me sometimes, but I've, I've learned better strategies, I guess, for managing all of that. But yeah, being case manager, I was wild. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I I would to add to like these better strategies or frames of thinking, you know, I have been there like trying to maybe overdo what I'm able to give or do for a family or like really trying to like do a lot of work for them. I step back and I remind myself that before this family ever came in contact <laughs> with me, mm-hmm. they went through so much more than they're probably going through now. Not that what they're going through now is not insignificant mm-hmm. and it's very challenging, obviously, and they, they do need support, but they've been through a lot. Mm-hmm. They've made it. They're very resilient. I probably need to take a couple steps back and try to have that balance, like you said. Maybe it's more of a balance that I'm working with this other family that's working with them or the foster family or these other systems and trying to be a little bit more of a, a facilitator mm-hmm. or an orchestra director rather than the person that does it all for them. Exactly, exactly. And I think too, um, just realizing that sometimes you're trying to put so many supports and services in, but and they're not working, they're not working, but they, it just needs time and they need to figure it out. And so that's always comical to me when we kind of just back off and then things get better. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. think, uh, okay, yeah, we think that we're, uh, but exactly what you said of just, they can figure it out. They'll figure it out. They figured it out before um, it's their life. And um, yeah, I think, I think learning that and reminding myself of that helps. Yeah, for sure. Just maybe to rewind a little bit, probably a lot of people don't know about uh, unaccompanied minors mm-hmm. and a foster pair, foster care program coming together. So can you explain a little bit about that background, what yes. it is? Yes, I usually explain what it's not first. So most people are familiar with what state foster care is, and they think, oh, refugee foster care, that must mean that they came as refugees with their families, experienced abuse and neglect, and ended up in foster care, which does happen, unfortunately. But that's not what we do. Like you said, we're working with unaccompanied refugees, and so that means they're coming here without their families. Um, so the separation didn't happen here because of abuse and neglect. The separation happened often during the chaos of war, um, maybe because of death of parents or maybe just because of 
physical separation. Some of our youth are still in contact with their parents. Um, some of them don't know where they are. Um, some of them know that their parents are deceased. Um, but for one reason or another, all reasons extremely traumatic, they're coming here without their primary caregivers, without their parents. And then what we do is kind of a bridge between child welfare and refugee resettlement, where we're resettling refugees, but we're also training and licensing foster parents to care for the refugees. And uh, we work mostly with ages 17 to 21. People, just like with state foster care, people want to foster young children, but um, logistically, a young child wouldn't really survive unaccompanied. And also culturally, if you have enough money to get one of your children out, you're going to send your oldest son out. Um, and then logistically, if you have this insane wait list of refugees that want to be resettled, you're going to prioritize the ones that are about to age out first because it's their last shot. So um, that's usually how why we, we work with mostly teen, well, exclusively teenagers. Um, and then uh, they live with foster families while they adjust and adapt to life here. And different than if they were to arrive when they're 18 and you as a job developer, you know, you're so focused on getting them on their feet and being able to pay their own bills so quickly, they often don't have the opportunity to really focus on English or education or just being a kid. So that's really hard to see the difference between a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old because we know there's not that big of a difference as far as where they're at cognitively, but the reality is so different and the um, pressure is so different. And so um, for a 17-year-old, we say your meals are, you know, you have this family who will feed you your meals and um, we just need you to go to school and we'll help you get a job. They still feel the same pressure from their families and home country to send money. So that's really hard to balance and say, but you're just a kid. You can't you can't provide for your entire family right now. You don't have a job. <laughs> you know, yeah. those things. They still feel that pressure, and they work really hard um, to do that pretty quickly. Um, but that's kind of the experience, and our goal is by the time they turn 21 and age out of our program, just like youth in state foster care age out at 21, for them to be self-sufficient and have healthy relationships. Because we realized at first we were focused so much on the hard skills of English and saving money and those are all so important but then what about the relationship skills and how to trust people and attachment and um, forgiveness and asking for help and all those really hard things to learn especially if you've experienced a lot of loss so that's really we're trying to make sure that we're looking at both and preparing them for both I really like that and I think as a a general community, state, society, we could all do a little bit better of like focusing on some of those soft, quote unquote, soft skills compared to the hard skills. Mm -hmm. We're all overly focused on people learning math, people learning the English language, whatever it might be, and not as focused on like, okay, let's, let's check in with you socially, emotionally, and see where you're at. I think it, it can seem obvious, but it's not obvious that if people feel a little bit more grounded, stable, comfortable in the situation they're in, emotionally, socially, all those other things are going to come so much easier. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. To, to kind of go back and also give a plug about this whole uh, unaccompanied minor refugee program, just for people that might not know much about it or want to know much more about it, you know, like obviously go do that research, but 
these things are politicized. So like mm-hmm. they become a part of a, somebody's political agenda. But really, they all started at a very bipartisan humanitarian level. Like mm-hmm. there's people around the world that their parents are killed, kids that their parents are killed, and they need to, to get out of the country because their country is not going to help them can they come to the United States and get help? And we said, yeah, let, let's do that. You know, <laughs> this, this seems like a good idea. Yeah, Kids need help. We can help them out. We've got these systems in place. Let's do it. So that's what's been happening. So when we think about like, oh, we got to end refugee resettlement or we got to end all these immigration laws, I think it takes us all to take a step back and say like, we're doing this from a very humanitarian perspective. Mm-hmm. Don't try to put your politics on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get my soapbox a little bit yes. because I'm really tired of like whoever it is running for president or governor or whatever. They're using these sort of things as a political uh, mm-hmm. platform and agenda. And really, I think people just need to take a step back and they really need to check in with their conservative Christian, whatever beliefs or their liberal progressive beliefs and say like, yeah, we all agree that helping kids is a good idea mm-hmm, no matter where they come from yeah one of our foster parents we've used this quote before because she said it in just a home study we do routinely and we all kind of stopped and thought oh my gosh that's it it's so obvious once you say it out loud but she just said if something if if war broke out here in bluffdale utah and i was killed i would hope there would be another mom who would mother my children and I, yeah, exactly like you said, if we just take a step back and get back to the core of our humanity, it's it's so obvious. Of course, of course, that's what we'd want and we'd expect from the human race. But it becomes a debate, which is just so crazy. And obviously, you and I both, it's hard for me too, because I think um, we all have, our, you know, conservative relatives or whatever who say, uh, you know, can't let the men come here. You know, but the children are like, okay, okay, whatever. I mean, obviously, I'm glad the children can come, uh, that most people can agree on uh, unaccompanied minors, that that's an, a good thing. But it's also kind of comical and sad because it would be so much better if, if their families could have come too. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Um, I think I just kind of focused on the, the kid part of it yes. because it, it, it's a little bit more relatable. But then, yeah, then you kind of like find these weird ways to rationalize or justifying your mind why dad shouldn't be able to come <laughs> yeah. and why the family shouldn't be able to come and it gets really weird and yeah we should just allow families that are in need that their countries are not in a good place let's let's yeah. allow them to come we got plenty of space and plenty mm-hmm. of jobs like the things that politicians say otherwise are uh, mostly just rhetoric yes and I guess I don't want to get too down this hole, but I think, too, one of the most heartbreaking parts of my job has been when youth were separated from family because of war, didn't know what happened to them. Or we settled here after, you know, they haven't, they've been disconnected for more than seven years, and then they find them through social media or whatever, and they say, my mom's alive, and she's in a refugee camp in Uganda. And your heart is just ripped open because you think, okay, I'm going to go get her tonight. I will get on a plane and I'll fly to Uganda and I'll bring her here. But I have to explain to this child, maybe someday, maybe if you wait another five years and you're a citizen, you could apply to sponsor her. Yeah. Or maybe her resettlement will go through, but the numbers of refugees resettled is so low. So the odds of that happening are so low, even though I wish I could just write a letter and say, no, her kids are here. Yeah. They're and good they kids. We want you to yeah, come. Yeah. They haven't seen her. And... Um, 
Yeah, just that's so hard. It's so hard to kind of what you were saying at the beginning about all these systems and having to explain them, and they're so complicated. And and um, it seems like it should be very simple, um, but trying to explain to youth what their options are for that, and and how long it would take, and how much money it would cost, and how much persistence and paperwork and uh, things like that to just be with our families again it's really hard yeah it's it's kind of crazy to think about and if i could really avoid talking about the politics <laughs> yeah, of it all i yeah, would because yeah. i don't like it like yeah. i really get riled up when it comes to <laughs> politics because it just annoys me yeah but unfortunately it is one of those things where if you don't talk about it then you can never address it sort of thing so i think it's worth at least mentioning some parts of how this is all tied into politics mm-hmm and just to provide some more perspective of, of like, well, you say that they were separated from their family with war. How does that work? Like, literally, we've heard stories of people in Somalia living in a village where uh, these other people were coming through and causing war and literally just killing people. So mom said, get your little brother and sister and start walking. Mm-hmm. And they literally walked across the border to Kenya and they had to live there until they were granted refugee status. Mm -hmm. So like this is like these are the realities of these people's lives. And I think if others heard and understood that reality, we would all become a little bit more softer towards Mm -hmm. their stories. Yeah, for sure. And I think circling back to one of your questions about kind of where I started um, and if I'm glad I started there, I think about um, really knowing what the challenges specifically for teenage refugees are period and being in it and seeing it um and that what consumed me was oh my gosh all these challenges that they're facing and how do I help them and how do I do these things and then transitioning to refugee foster care and saying okay (laughs) and 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 it's not a comparison it's not a competition but just imagining and if we all take a second and say okay yeah if you can imagine how hard it is to be a refugee period and then to do that um, during your developmental age period. And then to do that living with strangers. It's just crazy. It's so crazy. And so I think that, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm really grateful for those experiences and seeing, um, and sometimes just that perspective of, okay, uh, this would still be a problem no matter where they lived, even if they, you know, um, putting that into perspective, but also realizing the unique challenges and circling back to just the impact of family. And I, and I think too, our, our kids have feel so much pressure to learn English and they'll say, oh, um, I don't want to live if there's another foster youth in the home that speaks my language because then I won't learn English. I'm like, mm. no, most refugees live with their families and you have to hear English all day, but then you get to go home and speak your language and eat your food. Like, It's okay, you'll learn English. So just those kinds of experiences of, of knowing what it's like for, not knowing, but having a, having a little bit of an understanding of what it's like for refugee teenagers and then kind of what it's like for unaccompanied refugee teenagers. It's, it's been really interesting. I really like that you shared that perspective because I often get called and asked for advice about like, we have this uh, refugee youth in our school that is having this behavior issue. Can you help us? Mm-hmm. And they're like trying to, to pair it to like being a refugee. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and sometimes I literally say like, oh, sounds like he's a teenager. Yes. You know, like these are just kids too and they have the same teenage behavior problems as as any other kid that mm-hmm. is their age and i think it's part of maybe human nature but part of kind of the world we live in where we're always trying to connect certain especially bad behaviors <laughs> to other factors that 
aren't really they really don't relate so just because this kid had an outburst and maybe got a fine school doesn't necessarily probably is not at all connected to him being a refugee Mm -hmm. if there's any connection maybe he has some trauma and he's trying to deal with the trauma Mm -hmm. and trying to deal with his emotions properly but it's most likely just a teenage kid. Yes, that's know? so true. I'm so glad you brought that up. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, before uh, we bought a house, we lived with uh, my cousins. And it was hilarious because I was living with my aunt and uncle and teenage cousins. And exactly like you said, I'm thinking, this is what I do all day. And these are the same conversations. And these are the same issues. And these are the same challenges. And uh you know, talking to my aunt about the different strategies she's trying to use to support them and help them uh, figure it out because being a teenager is so crazy. But that's so true. And I think um, we... We talked about this, I feel like, when when I worked at Sunnyvale, that was always so clear as... um, People would say, people want to come and volunteer and and they want to talk about... They want to connect with the refugees. Like these kids want to talk about Justin Bieber. Yeah. Like they are teenagers, and and they don't want to talk about that. And um, yeah, I think that's that's one of my favorite parts too. Just working with teenagers and just yeah, see, seeing seeing that. And and um, they want to t- tell me about their crushes, and they want to talk about the drama and all the normal teenage stuff. Yeah, I I had the pleasure of taking a group of teenagers who also happen to be refugee teenagers on a hike to Inzan Peak and when we drove there we were listening to the radio and they knew every word yes. of the latest Ed Sheeran <laughs> song and there were several like uh, you know oh you have a crush on who sort of comments mm-hmm. and then like just going back and forth and it's just it was a good reminder for me again to just remember like man these are just teenage kids doing the normal high school junior high stuff we need to just support that really probably mm-hmm. you know not uh support any sort of like thoughts of like okay they're refugees <laughs> what does this mean you know like we get really deep and try to be insightful when i think we just probably need to simplify and just like oh these are just teenage kids they yeah. happen to have a different background yeah exactly what else are you noticing in foster care though um it's probably very complicated to get people that are interested to become mm-hmm. foster parents foster families what are you noticing? Yeah, I mean, I think actually I'm going to circle back to the comment about the book I read because okay. I think a lot of people hear about it and, like we said, they connect with that core humanity in themselves and, like, of course, I want to do this. But they don't maybe assess uh, the skills, the skill set that it takes. Um, Parenting uh, your own teenagers can be very difficult, but then I've noticed some parents, and I would say particularly in Utah, would say, I have six kids and they're angels. And I meet them and those kids are angels. Like they're like, yes, mother. Like very <laughs> obedient, right? Like they love that word, obedient. These kids are very obedient. And I just think, oh, <laughs> this will be interesting. Um, but I think there are other families who say, yeah, some of my kids listen to me, some of them don't. Sometimes this strategy works, so the other kid doesn't work. And I think um, uh, it's a very strange thing to have strangers, meaning us, in your home, observing you in your business, uh, invading your privacy, um, uh, measuring kids' rooms, just stuff like that. Yeah. Where it, it's it's very invasive and vulnerable position to be in. And I really, 
um, appreciate and admire the families for being willing to do that. But it also takes a level of openness to collaboration because we don't want to tell people how to parent, but we also see that it's not working. And so we're trying to say, let's try something else. And people get really um, defensive about, no, this is how I parent. And it worked. Look, yeah. yeah, it worked for those kids, but it's not working for their kids. So I think that's really interesting. And I think um, for all of us uh, in different ways, being open to adapting and changing and when you have new information doing something new um, is uncomfortable but also I think so important for growth and I think something I always say is refugee foster care should never work it's crazy that we do it but it does work especially if families are willing to um, adapt because the youth have to adapt they have to. They, yeah, they're, forced. They're, for, they're forced to be in this new environment. They're forced to be to learn a new language, to be exposed to new education system, to a new style of parenting. Um, they don't really have a say in that, which is really hard. And and but the family sometimes, um, um, well, they do have a choice. They don't have to change um, their family environment. They don't have to change the food that they eat. They don't have to change the way that they communicate or um, language, those kinds of things. But if they're willing to say, okay, we're both going to change and we're both going to try different things and we're both going to learn together, it's really amazing what can happen in those environments. But I recognize how difficult that is. So that's a challenge. And I think something too, um, there, especially a couple of years ago when there was a lot of talks in general conference about refugees and people would um, feel spirit. Warm in general conference. Yes, sorry. LDS yes, general yes. Conference. Sorry, <laughs> um, just jump in it. No, so, thank some you. people like, general conference, what is she talking yeah, about? Yeah, thank you. Other people are like, oh yeah, I remember that talk. Yes, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, and I think it's good. Like I think what we're saying, right, is to remind uh, people of Christianity and, yeah. and neighbors and caring about each other. Um, and it was good to see people care and to be impacted by that and to want to get involved. All those things are good. But I think it's also hard to say, um, to realize that. And I always say when people say, oh, you know, I heard about refugee foster care, I want to get involved. And I say, okay, well, the highest level of involvement and commitment would be to be a foster parent. And you should learn about that and if you're open to it. Um, but it's not something you should try out. <laughs> trying trying it out uh, does more harm than good, which isn't fair because people should be able to try something out. Um, and they can and they do. But um, it's a really uh, high level of commitment. It's long term. It's not a service project. It's not. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's it'll change everything about your life. And so that was hard because I think people are used to maybe um, being inspired and doing something about it, which is cool, but then being inspired by something else and doing something about yeah. it. And I think it's hard too when um, people feel spiritually motivated to do something and then they feel a lot of guilt and shame if they can't do it. And that was really hard to navigate with people of like, it's okay. Yeah. And it, I'm not saying that what you felt wasn't real or trying to uh, minimize that, but um, maybe this isn't for you. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I don't want to sound short-sighted or to minimize kind of what you're describing, but it, it, it almost seems not too dissimilar to like 
the decision to actually have your own child mm-hmm. yeah because some people like feel this sudden burst of inspiration <laughs> to have a child and you know if you're in a relationship then you can go ahead and do whatever you need to do to have a child right mm-hmm. and it's like oh you know we felt really good we just went for it sort of thing but then there's others that are really good at like okay we want to have children. What does that mean? How mm-hmm. are we going to plan and be able to support the child? And what is our parenting style going to be? And just go through this whole thought process. Mm-hmm. So it kind of sounds like that you're uh, hoping that there is like this passion behind wanting to be a foster parent, but also some thought and concern and some preparation that like, okay, are we ready for this? And are we going to commit? And mm-hmm. once we can admit, we're going to go for it. Yes. And, and exactly. And I think another thing that is true about foster care, it just is, and it's real, but it's heartbreaking, is that a lot of people don't, like you said, maybe are don't put a ton of thought or planning into having a biological child. And then they do, and they're like, this is so hard. What have we done? But it's very rare. It does happen where they say, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, and they have to figure it out. And they have to work it out and you don't give up and you keep trying, um, usually. Yeah. In foster care, that's really hard because there's an out. Uh-huh. And um, there has to be an out and I understand that, but that's really difficult because, um, and that's what I try, and I recognize I'm not a foster parent. And so it's not that fair for me to, to make judgments about what that's like. But for, from from the outside, it seems obvious. We've had foster parents say, you know, we can't do this anymore. Um, we told her no, um, no phone at the dinner table and she keeps doing it. And we told her blah, blah, blah. And I say, okay. And like you said, normal teenage behavior. I said, and I'm trying not to shame them, but everything inside of me wants to say, so if your own child, because they have their own teenage children, yeah uses their phone at the t- dinner table, you're going to tell them to move out. They have 10 days to move out. Really? Yeah. And I know that's not the issue, right? We do this all the time. Right. There's something else. There's something deeper. It's They're not, they're not saying we can't do this anymore because of the phone at the dinner table, but... That is that is so hard. And so I think we try to prevent that from happening, from just like making sure that they really understand what it takes, that, that um, their reason for doing it is going to last and um, that they will hopefully. And foster parents have brought up, which is valid. We ask them to treat the child like their own child um, and to commit to them like their own child. But then it's not because we can pull them. We can move them. Um, it's not like their own child because there's these strangers involved and all those other things. So I get that. I acknowledge that. So it's a strange thing if we're asking this from them, but we also don't treat them like that. And we'll say, no, you have to do this or things like that. It's a, it's a very, um, messy, but I would say beautiful kind of thing that families are willing to do. So and it's sort of illustrative of how us as humans go about relationships in general, right? Mm-hmm. Like if there's this weird little thing that we can use as an excuse to move out of the relationship mm-hmm. or like to deflect what's really going on, we usually take yes. that. We're usually like, okay, um, I really don't like how you squeeze your toothpaste sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I mean, maybe, but no, like there's probably something deeper going mm-hmm. on that you're not willing to to talk about or consider and you don't want to admit that maybe like, okay, Erica, what I really want to say is that I'm just really not cut to cut out to be a foster parent and it's not for me and I'm not willing to continue to sacrifice mm-hmm. to do it. I think 
I don't know, maybe people, maybe somebody has said that to you, but it's mm-hmm. probably more likely the other thing where they're like, there's some excuse that For we sure. need to. It's not me, it's you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what are the, some of the other factors of, uh, why people get involved and want to be foster parents and mm-hmm. maybe you can add in some of the things that you've seen that are successful. Yeah. Um, I think there are lots of reasons that people get involved. Um, I'm trying to think of, of different ones than what we've already touched on with like the mom saying, you know, I'd want someone to do the same for me. Then that people have kind of religious, um, feel moral obligation. Um, and some people, uh, it is political where they're upset about, um, political response to things and, um, they want to do something about it. Um, a lot of times it's, um, Emotional. They see kids at the border and uh, in cages and things like that. Yeah, I was and gonna say kids in cages. Yeah, kids in cages. Yeah. And we don't live in Texas, and uh, it's a little different process. But this is the closest thing to getting involved in that in Utah is yeah. working with unaccompanied minors. Um, so there's some of that. Some um, families. Um, have been through uh, trauma and lost themselves and really identify with that. That's been really interesting, actually. I, I mentioned Hotel Rwanda before, but actually we, we have several foster um, parents who um, whose parents died during the genocide in Rwanda, and they grew up kind of on their own and uh, had maybe informal caregivers, and they really identify um, with those youth and want to be involved. And so that's been really amazing. Obviously, we um, love to have foster parents with refugee and immigrant backgrounds, and their motivation for getting involved is, you know, we know what that's like. and Or we we know how hard it is with your parents, and we can't imagine what it would be like without your parents. We want to help them. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of different reasons to get involved, but I think... Um, uh, just like anything else, being trying to be aware of maybe um, what we were saying before about the social or other benefit of being a foster parent. Have you seen um, Instant Family? No, I it's haven't. It's so good. I, that's my plug for Instant Family. It's so good. It's about foster care. It's a uh, comedy, which is how I tricked my in-laws into watching it because it's a comedy, but it's also really emotional. Uh. Um, it's with Mark Wahlberg. It came out a couple years ago. Okay. But they do such a good job, I think, of showing um, the really hard, real side and the really beautiful um warm side but there's a scene where the parents are in their room and they're like we hate them and they're so ungrateful and they're so mean but everyone thinks we're so amazing for doing it but how could maybe if anyways they're trying to plot of how they could get out of it without looking bad and I love that scene because it was so good for me and I think healing for me to watch because you love these parents and you know they're good people and you've had all these endearing experiences with them if you just saw that out of context, you'd say those are the worst people, but you see everything they're going through and you're like, that's totally valid. Yeah. And so connecting with that. So that was interesting, but, um, I don't even, oh yeah. If that's your reason for fostering is, uh, it looks really good. Um, uh, you know, uh, popular phrase is kind of the white savior complex, okay. you yeah. know, those kinds of things. Um, uh, those seem don't seem to last. Um, but if there's something 
that draws you, you're passionate about this, you really care about this, you are able to put yourself in other people's shoes and imagine what that's like for them. And it's, um, I think in general with families, building a family, um, trying to be what the child needs instead of having the child be what you need. And that's really hard. Yeah, We all do that in our own relationships is we try to fill voids in us. That's not really fair to a child. And I think that happens a lot, actually. Um, maybe something they're not getting from their own children that they hope to get from this child. Uh, interesting. Um, it, you know, diff- different, different reasons to get involved. But I think um, when the motives are uh, sincere uh, and they're willing to work at it because it's a lot of work, then it works. Going back to the white savior complex, and I just mm-hmm. wanted to bring this back because it, I think maybe it might have been the, the first or maybe second time that it's come up on the podcast mm. and talking about this. And I think it might be helpful to define that because I think f- from our background, it's obvious what that is because we come up against it a lot. But from others, they might be like, well, I've never yeah. heard of that. That yeah, doesn't know. Yeah. I don't know what, what you do, mean. Yeah. So I'll give it my best sure, go to sure. describe it and then you can add. Sure. So my perspective is that you know like especially in utah mormonism literally we have a a worshiping of jesus as a white savior and he's white savior that came to uh people and people that weren't of color and save them and it's this this spiritual save from sin sort of thing but it's literally like coming to help you like all oh, you're a, a poor person from a, a colored ethnic background i'm gonna help you mm-hmm. sort of thing and we use that phrase in social work to kind of help people understand where maybe their motivations for coming from are like we don't obviously screen and say like wait are you coming at this from a white savior perspective (laughs) but we kind of like talk about it in different words and try to help people understand what is your motivation for trying to come in and help and what are you trying to get out of this sort of thing and maybe shift some perspective on that how did i do you did great (laughs) and i think too to add on that i'll share my own white savior journey because you know i mentioned seeing these films and being impacted as a little kid and wanting to do something and i always laugh that when i started studying anthropology i thought i'm gonna learn about these different people and places so i can help them i thought and then i very quickly like the essence of anthropology is how um that's a very western idea um that uh, they need my help, and um, and I realized that, yeah, just how it was pretty comical to study anthropology with that intention, and uh, quickly learned who am I to help anybody, and um, I uh, gain way more than I give. But I also think maybe that was the beginning was it was shifting. The total opposite and then realizing no what it's about is leveling the playing fields and realizing like we all have things to give and to learn from each other we're all connected things like that um but i also think building off of that my first boss at promise um was very uh passionate about this and and explained it in a way that really helped me and i've thought back on where she talked about the word charity which i think growing up uh in a religious organization where charity is talked about a lot and it's the best charity is the best but i'm not talking about the pure love of christ charity i'm talking about charity like giving to charity doing charity work and she talked about how charity reinforces um power dynamics where i'm the giver and you're the receiver i'm the helper and you're who needs help and once i kind of had that in that kind of language i could understand the difference and 
I really tried, I'm sure I messed it up a lot, and I'm sure I mess it up still, to not approach any of the work I do as that. That, welcome to America, I'm here to help you, I'll be your guide. <laughs> uh, especially because I have never been through anything, even remotely, like anything that they've been through. Who am I to... Um, it, yeah, it's, it's strange even to be a case manager. What does that mean? I'm managing your case. Mm. Um, and I really try to acknowledge that in with the youth that I work with because a lot of a lot of them culturally, because I'm technically older than them, might have this idea about power and authority and respect. And I say, okay, technically I'm slightly older than you, <laughs> but uh, you have way more life experience than I do, and I have no idea what that's like. What I do know is um, that you survived something a lot of other people couldn't, and you can do that. You can apply those skills here. I'm just going to help you understand a little bit about this system and how the rules are different so you can thrive. But kind of like you said before about you don't need me, you did this without me, and this is a new challenge, um, and I'll try to help, yeah. but um, you can you can do this, and so, I don't know. I think that's my own experience with White Savior and kind of shifting my own perspective and making sure that I don't treat people like that. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think uh, a lot of people have probably started careers or like going back to always started jobs started volunteering from those perspectives and then have been able to shift so I think explaining how you shifted could be helpful to other people and I think you did say it pretty nicely when you kind of explain like oh I can explain to you how this system works and maybe give you some education on this particular thing but beyond that, you know, you're already a, a very capable human being, then you can do all this that you need to do. And it's a great way to view kind of this type of work is, okay, maybe there's just a, a knowledge gap on a certain system or a certain way of doing things because of culture, custom, um, politics, whatever it is, and we can fill in that knowledge gap for you so you can become informed. And now you get to decide how to go out into the community yourself mm -hmm. and, and live. So I, I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate um, the insight from Promise South Salt Lake. Yeah, about, yeah uh, shout about out to that. Rachel if you're out there. And Rachel, too, she would say um, the youth often called her teacher. And I think part of it was cultural and maybe English, not having to remember people's names. But she'd say, I'm not a teacher. Uh. And they'd say, they a teacher. And she'd say, put me in the forest in Burma and we'll see who's the teacher. Uh. And I love doing that, too, with the youth I work with because they – um, part of the culture shock kind of wave is to start feeling defeated and like, maybe I can't do this. English is really hard. Going to school makes me feel stupid. Those kinds of normal experiences. But then just saying, I want you to imagine me in your hometown. And, and they start laughing at me. And it's funny. It's funny. And saying, and I'm trying to learn Tigrinya and I'm trying to help with the cows. And how long do you think it would take me to learn Tigrinya? And they're just laughing and they know I would look like a complete idiot yeah. if I live there. Yeah. And that's true. And so then that kind of opens them up of, you're not stupid. You're incredibly smart. You can do this. This takes time. It's okay. It's okay to ask for help. You're in a new place. But like you said, that's it. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah it's it's it is a kind of like a your your mind is blown when you really sit down and try to think about some of this but it, on the other side it like let's just simplify it a little bit mm-hmm. like uh, 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 this is what it is um and i thought just maybe a, another thought about this white savior complex obviously me and you are both white and we're explaining the white savior complex from our perspective as a white person, maybe having started some of what we do from this white savior complex or having that a part of our, our history and then being able to shift our perspective. So I think I say that um, from a vein of like, I hope us explaining what our experience has been <laughs> can maybe help somebody else get some perspective about their want to maybe become a foster parent mm-hmm. or they want to to help with refugees here in Utah. Yeah, and I think it's all um I my perspective on it has shifted, but that doesn't mean that it's not a part of who who I am or how I'm perceived and I I'm definitely aware of the fact that I manage a program um full of staff that represent more the youth that we work with and these youth and um how it feels sometimes for some of the youth to say you don't know anything about what it's like to be me. I say, I know. So I think um, I have become more aware of it, but it doesn't mean that I'm, I am oh, I have none of that in me or that that's not part of um, my, what, it, what my career means. It's something I think about and wrestle with and try to continue to be aware of. And I think that's really all we all need to do uh, surrounding these topics is to have a little, you know, a little bit of a wrestle. Like, let's take some time to think constructively about it, to be sensitive about it and make it a a continual thing. Because, yeah, I I still go back and forth on doing a good job of speaking to some of these things and doing a bad job and like outwardly looking like an ass for (laughs) a lack of a better word, you know, like I go back and forth of being good and bad at these sort of things so i think it's it's more about approach and sensitivity to it and being willing to work on it over time for sure mm-hmm. yeah so uh going back to talking a little bit more about foster care and what goes into that uh you were mentioning some of like things of like you as a organization helping to facilitate the process of somebody becoming a foster mm-hmm. parent of like literally lo- the logistics. I got to measure this room sure. to make sure it's standard. I got to come look at your house mm-hmm. to make sure it, it fits the bill. And just to give a little bit of background, you could probably speak to this better, but this is kind of what the state and the, the federal government does as a foster care program mm-hmm. to make sure that we as an organization, I shouldn't say we, but you guys mm-hmm. as an organization, uh, find places that are suitable for, for kids to live sort of yes. thing. So there's this logistical piece of like, yeah, we want to just check in and make sure that the logistics of the, the situation are good. But then there's also this whole other emotional connection being a, mm-hmm. a parent piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the rules and the requirements um, dictated by the government, like you said, were initially designed for state foster care, but then they're adapted and and projected onto us. And so that's hard. And it's so hard to be the middleman with that when the parents say, this is so stupid, or this doesn't apply to us. And they say, I know, but we can't do it without this license. And this is how we stay in compliance with this license. Um, And then, yeah, uh, there's all the really... Uh, ridiculous. We always say it's more paperwork than a mortgage. Um, so much paperwork, so much, um, so many rules. Um, and then 
And then there's also just the, we do a foster parent training that kind of touches more on the um, soft skills of active. But like you said, it's the same that you'd use, that I use in my relation, my personal relationships, my family relationships, parenting your own children, really any kind of healthy relationships of active listening and um, developing relationships and understanding stages of relationships and stages of grief and stages of attachment and all these different things that go into um, our interactions. Um, And then there's this ongoing trying to provide and it's, it's kind of interesting for the staff on my team because they're trying to be an emotional support for the parents and a resource and collaborating them with them. But then they also have to say, and here's this paper and we're this is your deadline and holding accountable. So it's, it's a really interesting relationship, really interesting dynamic. Um, and... Um, it's a it's an ongoing there's a lot you have to do at the beginning and then you have to do renewals every year so it's a lot of work um, but that also means that the parents who do that are really willing to to do the work yeah. it takes so um, that also kind of uh, we have some parents who are really excited but then all the paperwork and all things which is totally fair um, turn them off to it and then it's kind of like yeah it would have been really hard for you to do what it takes to do this yeah mm-hmm. so in a, in a sense it kind of is a for lack of a better phrase it weeds people out yeah. a little bit yeah, yeah it does so like from a log- logistical standpoint going back to like the very basics mm-hmm. the foster care program is there to help ensure that you're not putting uh, a foster child in a closet for a room, yes, you know? Yes. But then on, on the f- total other end of the spectrum, it's like this idea of like, y- you're about to have a child in your life that has a very complex life and a complex background, just mm-hmm. like any human being. Are you ready for that? Yeah, exactly. And and something too, what you, what you kind of mentioned, um, but I've been thinking about recently is there's all there are all these different agencies involved, kind of in what we do. It's um, this spider web almost, uh, but it makes sense. And I even though I spend so much of my time trying to follow up and collaborate with all, all these different agencies that interact with ours, I recognize that it's because we work with such a vulnerable population and we have to be held accountable. So we have all these people checking on us and holding us accountable and auditing us and, um, you know, having these expectations, which is really fair to make sure that um, we're we're taking care of these kids and Mm. we're doing our jobs. So I try to remind our staff of that, especially during audit season when it's so horrible and uh, it's so much work, but um, yeah, it's, that's the purpose of it all. Yeah. Do people get involved purely for the economics of it? So I, I'm convinced that that's a myth. I, it's kind of like, social work I guess where Mm. I'm like well then you're not very smart because it's not a lot of money and it's a lot of work Um, I'm sure if you had so the maximum you could have in your home is three Um, but so it's 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 um, the baseline is $28 a day and it's considered reimbursement for what it costs to provide for the basic needs of a human being. So $28 a day is three meals, um, gas to appointments, um, the extra electricity and the extra laundry, um, hygiene items, clothes, all their needs as they um, get older, new underwear, all those things, that's all included in that amount. And so... If you put that on hourly, 
it's not it's yeah, not it's worth your time. Nothing. It's not considered income to the government. Um, it's considered reimbursement for what it takes to, to meet the needs of a child. I guess it is possible to um, pocket that and um, eat rice and beans and get DI vouchers. But I would, and maybe that happens. Um, but I would say that that's. I haven't seen that with our families. I really haven't. Um, and I. Yeah, I, I, I just think there are other ways to make money <laughs> that, yeah. that are a lot less work. Well, I bring it up partly to dispel the myth, and I you know I think it is, for the most part, a myth within refugee foster care mm-hmm. and probably in the general foster care setting as well, just because it is like it doesn't, doesn't make any sense that somebody would be like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. I'm going to make a lot of money from, yeah. from doing this sort of thing. Cause and that's why they do have the rule... I think I think that's one of the reasons why they have a rule of maximum of three. Mm. So there's not people just kind of running a boarding house of children. Right. Um, but yeah, it is it is a very common myth. People say that all the time. And actually, it's speaking of just teenagers, they hear that and then they'll say that and say, you're just in this for the money. I know CCS is paying you to do whatever <laughs> I want. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Um, CCS is paying you, so you have to drive me to my friend's house every day. It quickly becomes yes. a manipulative yes, bargaining chip. exactly. Yeah. So that's always funny, but yeah. Any other common myths about foster care that are mm-hmm. out there that we could dispel tonight? Well, I think kind of what you said about just normal teenagers. I think a lot of people... Um, but I think it goes both ways. Um, peop- I think foster parents are portrayed as um, cruel, mean, I don't know, in, in movies or TV or something. And I'm sure abuse happens, and that's why they have all these checks and balances. But like I said, our foster parents are so amazing, and that's not. Our foster parents are really engaged. They work really hard. They're not the guy watching TV with all the foster kids running around kind of that you see and then I also think for the kids um, I've sat in on some state foster care youth panels and I think it rings true for the youth in our program too about them saying you know before I was placed my foster parents were told that I was a delinquent that Mm. you know all these negative words and putting them in labels I think kids parents think foster kids means and we both have experienced the transition from the troubling youth conference to the promising youth conference. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, this like troubled, dark, um, angry, um, uh, people are scared about foster kids abusing their own children. And I usually say that can happen just like your own child could. Um, but it's not more common. It's not um a lot of the fears, I guess, that people have about a foster child, that word is loaded and right. it's not fair. And um, and I think they're just regular teenagers. And and that means that some of, I always think it's so funny, just trying to prepare foster parents because I'm like, yeah, it means some of them are really respectful and some of them are really disrespectful. Some of them are really grateful. Some of them will never say thank you. Just like teenagers do yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they Just, all have such different yeah. personalities and um yeah people even within the same network i thought it was funny when one of um our umbrella agencies i guess that we work with wanted to do a call and said you know you've worked with a lot of rohingya um, unaccompanied refugee minors. I wanted to talk to you about that. I said, okay. And then all their questions, I'm just laughing and saying, what do you want me to say? Or, um, yeah, what have you noticed about Rohingya youth? Like, 
well, one is like this, and one is like this, and one is like this. And they're youth. Yeah, yeah. they're generally like fish <laughs> and spicy food. Like, that's the thing I can think of. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just funny. And so all the labels, I think those are the myths. It's all the labels and all the, the preconceived notions that we have um, just aren't true. Because like you said, they're very dynamic, complicated individuals, just like we all are. So Yeah, I think it could connect back to that comment I, I made about people asking about refugee youth specifically can you tell me about refugee yes. youth versus like can you tell me about foster mm-hmm. youth that are in foster care and i think again like as human beings maybe it's a little bit easier to navigate our world with labels and things like that but mm-hmm. on the other hand if i even think back to my childhood and if you'd hear about the kid that was in foster care that was in your mm-hmm. school and you would be able to excuse like oh makes sense mm-hmm. he, he's he's a foster kid yes. you know mm-hmm. or all oh, he's in he's in foster care she's in foster care sort of thing it makes sense why they are the way they are mm-hmm. and there might be some truth to that statement that there might be some connection on on behavior or their personality based upon their foster care experience but it's more likely that they're just a kid and they need love and support yeah. and we need to do a better job as a community to remove all these labels that go with it. For sure, absolutely. And I think too, I really um, respect people who work with state foster care um, and those foster parents. I think the challenges that they face are really unique and um, the outcomes of those programs um, are hard. And I think you know people have those stereotypes of um, foster youths um, are more likely to experience homelessness and incarceration and those things. And, and that's really a question of us and our systems and where, how are we failing these children? Um, and is it a testament of them being bad kids? Um, and, and I think too, that's another myth, I guess, and something that, um, is unique about refugee foster care. And, and I thought about this about, you know, why is that? I don't know. I think it has to do with, um, the youth and, uh, maybe, because it's smaller and a little more um, privatized, we can individualize services a little bit more. But really, um, ninety, maybe more than ninety percent of our youth do really well. Um, the five to ten percent of the youth um, that really struggle in the program and out and out of the program consume. You know, we send so many meetings and all these things, and it's easy to think oh my gosh, this isn't working. <laughs> and to get uh, really sad, and, and it is, it's sad, and I think about those youth. But I also try to take a step back and say, but generally, they're doing really well. Um, and uh, yeah, like you said, I just think um, there are so many strengths and all those labels um, aren't aren't really relevant honestly. yeah and in general probably 90 percent of overall youth in our community are doing pretty well yeah. there's that five to ten so percent true. that so are, are really struggling too mm-hmm. that we have all these other systems whether it's foster care uh, you know dare i say juvenile justice yeah. or anything like yeah. that you know like there's all these other systems in place to help those five to ten percent you know those 90 percent really doing well let's keep moving but there's five to ten percent of youth that needs a, a little extra support yeah exactly is there any reasons or things that you'd like to bring up of like this decision of like, okay, I want to be a foster care parent, but I'm not sure if refugee foster care or just mm. a regular sort of yeah, state foster yeah. care program, is there some differences yes, there? That's a really good question. Um, so state foster care, the goal is family reunification. And so there's a lot of, um, 
back and forth and that impacts the attachment detach attach 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 detach um which is really challenging for everyone involved and you kind of what i said about uh trying to fill your own void um, versus what does the youth mm, need. Mm-hmm. That's so important for anything, but I would say especially in state foster care because uh, in even instant family, which I love, the happy ending is that they get adopted uh, and that's not the happy ending. Right. The happy ending is they go back with mom. Right. And so um, that has to be your goal. You have to be on the parent side. Uh, if you think that um, people whose kids are in foster care are bad people, then you shouldn't be a foster parent. Yeah. You have to, you you have to be there for the kid. But the best thing you can do for the kid is be there for the parents. But I think um, if you're interested, uh, there are more opportunities to foster younger children in state foster care than in refugee foster care. It's still their biggest need to find refuge. Uh, sorry, uh, parents for teenagers, um, but they do have. Um, babies and young kids and so if that's something that's really important to people they should not consider refugee foster care and they should try with state foster care Um, and then also if they're looking for more maybe um, temporary transitional kind of care um, that might be more for state foster care but for refugee foster care um, it's teenagers and kind of think of it as um, an official adoption where even when they turn 21 and they age out of our program, I always say, I'm 30. I still call my parents. Yeah. I go home for the holidays. Yeah. Um, we are looking for that really long-term relationship. And so um, adoption sometimes happens, but we that kind of approach, um, we hope for all of our families. So if that's something that people are interested in, um, if, if you... Um, I'm trying to think of, of how to put it as far as um, uh, for for refugee foster care. Obviously, there's just more of the cultural exposure that does happen in state foster care. And that's an issue for them, especially to find families who speak Spanish or who might be a better cultural match um, for Latino families. But for refugee foster care, obviously, like we have a lot of youth who are Muslim. And so. Um, learning about halal, if those kinds of things interest you and incorporating those kinds of things into your home interest you, then that's great. If that seems really hard for you, that's okay. It just doesn't mean, it just means it's not a super good fit Mm. for you. So I think, um, uh, I would say that's another reason why people do it actually, is people like to, especially living in Utah, kind of open up their world and, um, incorporate some other cultures into their home some families really like to do that and that's a reason to do it so i think um they have their own really unique challenges um, and needs so i always say we're not trying to compete or take away from if people um feel like they have the skill set for state foster care they should do that what's the um the youngest youth that you see in, in refugee fall? 12, 12. But they came with older siblings. Okay. So I always say, don't wait around for 12 year old. I, I can't promise that will ever right. happen again. The average age is like 16, 17. But we we got a 14 year old this year and I still am like, it's our baby. He's so <laughs> tiny. It's a baby. He's so cute. So that's to me really young is a 14. Yeah. And do you, I know that you haven't been involved super long term, but do you see that, you know, when kids are aging out and that they 
the that family those parents still stay involved and have a relationship and there's yeah. more long-term happening yes i would say what happens more often which is sad it kind of circles back to us trying to focus more on teaching these skills to the youth is the youth push it away mm. and for lots of different reasons one because that's normal during that stage is <laughs> to say yeah. i don't need you and how many moms say my son in college never calls me right. that's normal um but that's hard um a lot of our youth are uh kind of push away and say i don't need a family i can take care of myself and then later are alone and that's really hard to convince them to call them and say they, they'd probably be open to it again They're like no 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 i mean it's been years you know yeah so i think that's more common is the youth pulls away and cuts off that relationship more often than the parents do and that's hard on any parent and that's right. hard to prepare them to say we want you to be there long term but also they might not want you to be there long term yeah. so that does happen but i would say um if if they're both um i would say if the youth is open to it most of our families, that's what they really want. And they do such a great job of that long-term relationship. Yeah. Going back to the Utah specific factors, you mentioned that you've observed some families in Utah, like having maybe a little bit more openness to, to wanting to invite some of the, the cultural aspects into their home. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're open-minded about that. Where does that come yeah, from? Yeah, some, uh, sometimes. And I would say some of them, um, maybe they didn't grow up in Utah. Okay. And they, they grew up in places where um, they had friends of different religions and different backgrounds. And then they moved to Utah and they think, my kids don't have that. And they don't really understand what that's like. Some of them, maybe they served a mission and they really liked that experience of living in a new place. And they also can empathize in some ways of how that was scary and hard. And they had to learn language and they didn't know any. Anybody, and they like that idea of, especially if they served in a similar area, mm. to say, oh, you know, having that language and that food in our home would be so cool. Um, so I think those are some of the reasons why they might be um, more inclined to do that. It's not always, yeah, it's not always the case. Yeah, I was, I was kind of curious about yeah. like the, the Mormon LDS return missionary factor of like, yeah. I want my mission yeah. to close to there. Yes, so totally. I, I know what's going on. This could be cool sort of thing. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious because I kind of am laughing about it in my head because I sometimes just picture these well-meaning uh, return missionaries. They're like, oh, I, I got this. You yeah. know, like I lived abroad. Yes. Like, is, is that a thing where it's like, uh, they're a little bit too confident about For sure. that sort it's of connection? It's also funny when we say, when they say, I speak Spanish. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like 12 years ago. And uh, that's pretty funny. And the kids are like, mm. <laughs> but yeah, definitely the overconfidence. And um, we all do this of, of thinking, I know what you've been through. I know what that's uh-huh. like. It's like, nah, that was not the same. You knew it was temporary. You know, a lot of, that was a choice that you made. You volunteered to do that. It's not the same. Um, so yeah, there's definitely all sorts of levels of that that happens. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. What are, uh, what other Utah factors make mm-hmm. Utah a great place for a foster care program and a refugee uh, foster care program that you've observed the yeah. solid community Utah in general yeah I think it's there's there's always the good and the bad one good and bad is people um, are used to having a lot of kids and having more kids isn't that big of a deal okay um, whereas in other places where it's more common to maybe have no children or one child ask them to take well, how about two more would be like what? 
no, what? Yeah. Like, but I think um, a lot of uh, families are like, sure, yeah, we have a huge van, load them up, yeah. and you know they're used to that kind of lifestyle. But that also means that that's pretty hard. Um, something we've realized is a lot of our youth that have really high therapeutic needs shouldn't be in homes with young children. Mm. For various reasons. And so um, finding families without young children. It's like, well, Utah has a lot of young children. Um, And then also just the amount of time that it takes if you have six kids. That's a lot of work and to to give a child attention that they need and all the therapy appointments and things like that. It's just really overwhelming. So I think it's a good thing and then also can be a challenge. Um, other Utah specific, I think um, being a conservative state that's known for being open to refugees is good. Yeah, I was going to say that too. Yeah. yeah, so that definitely impacts things. And I think when I talk to other states that do this, they're really surprised and say, how did you do that? I say, I don't know. Yeah. Another funny thing that just as I say that someone said, sometimes we have teenagers who are pregnant or have young children and other states have said, how did you get foster parents who are willing to do that? I said, they all seem to be willing to do that. Right. It doesn't seem to be um, people are excited about that. Yeah. To have a baby in the house or whatever. Yeah. Or to help like a young mom figure right. that out. I don't know why that is. Maybe it is a Mormon factor or something with babies or I don't know. But huh, that, that has not been hard yeah. um, to find families who are willing to do that. Um, and I think generally... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think some other challenges is we're really always trying, we, we want foster parents anywhere. I'm not trying to discriminate, but living in Salt Lake is is better because the schools know how to work with our youth. Yeah, for sure. Their um, systems in place, the interpreters, the you know specific mental health services at AU, uh, UHHR, or in Salt Lake. Um, it's really difficult um, because refugee families, as of right now, are almost entirely resettled to Salt Lake. But we we resettle kids in places where they're the only ones, right? And that's really hard. And it's hard for the families to understand why that's hard, right? And um, and and I get it. And they get defensive. And they're like, "This is a great place to live." I'm like, right. yes, for you and for your right. children. But what is it like for our kid to live in Eagle Mountain? Um, so that's that's a challenge, and I think that's something that's a little unique to Utah is I've talked to other states that do this, and there are multiple kind of cities or cultural hubs, but in Utah, for now, it really is just Salt Lake. Yeah. So um, we, we started getting calls this summer from people kind of in St. George and Cedar City and saying, why won't you place here? And I'm thinking... What? I'm not going to place a kid in Cedar City by themselves with right. no refugee community at all, no right. interpretation, no ESL, all these things. Um, and that's hard to explain. And, and I think that's kind of unique about Utah is really if you want any kind of culturally relevant anything, it's in Salt Lake. Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent point. I don't know that I've thought about it that way, but it completely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um as we wrap up, like, do you have any other final thoughts or nuggets of wisdom or asks from the community that you... Hmm, yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I kind of mentioned this, that being a foster parent is a really intense level of commitment. We're always looking for more parents, especially if you've parented teens, if you've parented teens with depression, anxiety, other mental illnesses that you feel like... Um, 
have taught you things about mental health, about therapy, about needs um, that teenagers might have while experiencing those things, that really helps. Um, But also there are other ways to get involved. So if you don't feel comfortable being a foster parent, don't push yourself into that or convince yourself to do that. You can volunteer, you can mentor, you can tutor. Um, We're trying to build more programs to support the foster parents. Um, So kind of common, you're familiar with resettlement agencies have mentoring programs for new refugee families Mm -hmm. where family can be matched with them and they can help them and um, be like a neighborly support system. And we're trying to do that for foster families, which foster families are first a little hesitant for I don't need that you know I'm not new here but um, it's a new experience and it requires a lot and if we can do more of a village approach and support the families with all that entails um, that will preserve placements and give them the support that they need to do this long term which is what's in the best interest of the kids so there are lots of ways to get involved Um, and even just spreading the word because maybe it's not a good phase in your life or whatever but maybe your cousin or your neighbor or something it is right so i think the biggest thing is most people don't know what it is and they've never heard of it or they they've heard of it but they think it's something it's not yeah so i think um learning about it and sharing it with people um so that people who feel like it's a good fit for their family find us so yeah and i think uh you know maybe this is a shameless plug for the podcast but mm-hmm. also like hey, just listening to this episode i think you do a wonderful job of explaining some of those intricacies and the details of of what might go into it so it could be just a good listen to like okay i now have a little bit better idea of what it means to be in foster care yeah for sure and i think realizing this is something unique about that we're the only program in utah not every, not every state does it and the united states is only one of i think three countries in the world that resettles unaccompanied minors and so um learning about that it's cool it's cool that we do it um it's um really fascinating how they um, were able to connect a system that's already in place and adapt it for this population and so yeah listening to podcasts and researching and learning about it and it's um it's good yeah if people wanted to reach out and get in contact with you just in general or specifically about foster care yeah, so um, uh, I work for Catholic Community Services, so ccsutah.org has a lot of information. People want to reach out to me. I mean, I pretty much give out my, my cell phone's on the website. <laughs> you can call me. Okay. Um, my phone number is 949-973-5558. So, yeah. There we go. And we can put that contact info in the little notes sure. attached to the episode as well. So if people want to check that out. Um you know, we started off by kind of slagging off people on their Christian conservative beliefs, <laughs> but I think we, you know, we came full circle and we admitted that Utah actually does a pretty good job considering it being a, a politically conservative red state. Mm-hmm. And so Utah might be a model for that. But, you know, in general, there's some some still room to work on that perspective, mm-hmm. I think. But I really appreciate your time, Erica. It's been great talking and uh, really added to my perspective I, I feel like I knew a decent amount but it's really helped me to add some perspective too thank you so much you're very easy to talk to oh, thanks thanks everybody for listening